Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6, 1, we then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness and in fastings, by purity and by the knowledge and by long suffering and by kindness and by the Holy Spirit and by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. And Father, we just ask as always for the grace of the Spirit of God even now as we open the Scriptures. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through what you have spoken in your word by your Spirit, that he would be our teacher and the one who interprets and helps us understand the Word of God. As always, Lord, we pray that in the way that only you can, that you would speak to each and every one of us in a way that we might hear the very voice of Almighty God communicating things to our hearts that we need to hear through this portion of the scripture. So bless your word and speak now, Lord, we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You know, it's often been said before, there's a time to play and there's a time to work. Of course, that passage in Ecclesiastes describes there's a time and purpose for every season under heaven you know we say things in america it seems like i hear a lot work hard and play hard and i think in america we do pretty good with the play hard thing Uh, sometimes i think we're starting to forget how to do the work hard thing Uh, and government's making it pretty easy for a lot of people to do that it seems but i tell you something there is indeed something very healthy and god ordained and you see it from the garden of eden before sin ever entered the world god created adam he put him in a garden and he told him to work he told him to tend the garden and to be productive and to accomplish things and work was a sanctified thing it was something that kept him occupied and allowed him to find purpose And in the same way, in the Christian life, spiritual work or doing good works is supposed to be a part of the spiritual life. It is a part of God's plan for us. Though the Bible is very clear in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace and through faith and that it is a gift of God. And Ephesians 2 says it is not of works. So we understand that. The way to be forgiven of our sin, the way to have assurance that we're going to heaven, the gift of God, which is eternal life, the way to have a relationship with God and know we've made peace with God. It is not of works. It is by faith alone and by grace alone. It's a free gift. We don't earn it. We cannot achieve it or acquire it through works. Yet in that very same chapter, just a few verses further after saying we are saved, not of works. It then says in Ephesians 2, for we as Christians are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So the Bible says we are saved, not of works, but it says that we are saved, that as we become Christians, God rescues us from our sin, redeems us calls us to be his servant in such a way that we may then perform good works for good works. You know, I said from the pulpit before, but it goes without, you know, you know, saying, if you think very simply about the fact that God could have saved us and allowed our heart to stop beating the next moment 
and took us right to heaven. Once we're ready for heaven, we're kind of all a lot of insurance casualties for God still on the earth, if you think about it. I mean, we keep the angels very occupied. I mean, God could say, look, okay, he just accepted my son, Jesus Christ. They're forgiven. They are ready for heaven. Let me make it easier for them and way easier for all of us here in heaven. Uh, let's just bring them home right now. And it could have been the end, but God saved us for a purpose to live out the rest of our life on earth. And part of that purpose, the Bible says, is for good works, which God has prepared or designed for us to accomplish. First Corinthians, Paul said in chapter three, verse nine, for we are co-workers in God's service. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, you are the light of the world. And then he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. When Paul writes to Timothy, his younger protege, he writes in his letter to Timothy, particularly to those who were well off or those who were rich within the church. And he says this, 1 Timothy six eighteen: let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share. Paul says in Titus 3.14, let our people learn to maintain, that is a regular routine, good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. In other words, the Bible says that it's becoming unfruitful in our spiritual life when we're not maintaining some degree of doing good works. We can become a Christian couch potato we can become a pew potato where we just sit and we take in and we receive but we don't have an outlet in our christian life and the bible says that both are essential in fact hebrews 10 even tells us that part of the reason we're to assemble together is to stir up love and good works amongst one another it's one of the things that we're called to do. So once we become a Christian, we are to actively serve, to routinely minister and make our lives useful to the Lord and productive for his purposes. And there is, of course, in a dark and sinful world, there's a challenge in doing good works. It's not easy. It takes a degree of sacrifice, sometimes perseverance. But this is what we find Paul addressing in our verses this morning as he describes his experience and his team of ministers that served together with him in their missionary endeavors. And we find great lessons how to seek to be useful to the Lord, how to work for the Lord and let our life be productive in what we do. Remember the background Paul has just been describing in this section of the book his ministry experiences, and particularly because there were critics who were trying to falsely accuse Paul. And most recently, in our last verses, we finished chapter five, Paul in the last section was describing God's marvelous plan of salvation. In the last few verses of chapter five, we looked at that. He described how we've been reconciled and brought back into right relationship with God. And that once we've been brought into right relationship with God, he said, after that's happened in our life, God has now blessed us with the privilege to know the ministry and to understand the message of reconciliation. That is to help other people come into relationship with God. If you look back in chapter five, verse 20, Paul says there of himself and really of all of us as Christians, now then we, that is those of us who have come into relationship with God, we are now ambassadors for Christ. As though God were, look, pleading through us, God working with us and through our lives, pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as a spiritual ambassador on foreign soil in this earth, this is not our home, heaven is our home and our citizenship, we are now on this earth on foreign assignment and there are some real challenges as there are for any ambassador when you're on foreign soil trying to accomplish the purposes of the one who put you there. And so therefore we experience certain challenges and difficulties trying to be productive for the Lord as well. And it seems this is what Paul is alluding to as he describes his own experience. Look, going back in first one, Paul goes on with this idea of being an ambassador, working in cooperation with God. He says, verse one, chapter six, we then as workers together with him, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So notice Paul identifies himself as well as all of his ministry partners. And we may fairly say as well as every Christian who wants their life to be fruitful to God, 
he identifies himself as working in, notice, direct partnership together with God. He says here that we are workers together with him. Now, important to understand, God is always working in many different ways. God is always working, trying to help mankind in various ways because he loves people and he wants to care for them. And God's main goal, as we've talked about, God's main goal is bringing people into right relationship with him. That is God's number one goal in the way he's working on this earth is to bring people in the right relationship with him. And then I guess we may fairly say also then to help people stay in right relationship with him. And though God certainly, I don't think any of us would disagree, is more than capable to do all of his work alone. You know, he's more than capable, just like a father who's more than capable to go out and push the lawnmower and mow his lawn. But yet if he has a little son that wants to help him, He's willing to let his son participate, but he could mow the lawn all by himself. But he allows his son to participate in the process for the sake of bonding and relationship. Well, look, God is more than capable to do all of his work on his own. However, he lets us, the Bible says, share in the process. He lets us have the privilege, as Paul says here, to be workers together with him. So as God works in many different ways, we get the privilege to be a co-laborer with God. We get the awesome opportunity to get to participate and fulfill the works that God wants to do. As I offer my life to God, as you offer your life, your physical body, your your abilities to God as an available tool, God will fulfill his work through our lives. He lets us participate in the process. The key is not doing random works and just trying to do some good things and ask God to bless our ideas. The real key is honestly trying to find out and understand the ways that God works and how God is particularly wanting to work and then joining yourself with him in partnership and just being available and just saying, Lord, I'll show up. I can be available. I'll help however you want to use me. I'm a flexible employee, God. Whatever you want me to do, you want me to stock a shelf, sweep a floor, you want me to give a presentation, God, whatever you want me to do, I just, you're working anyway. Can I just get involved in the process? And just letting yourself become a fellow worker, relying on God's power to work through you. And this is what Paul's describing. That's why he said in chapter five, we're ambassadors, but yet God's pleading through our lives. That is God working through Our lives is a picture of working in cooperation with God, like Jesus in Mark 16, when he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And as they went out, it says to then do what Jesus told them to do to preach everywhere. It says the Lord was working with them, showing his power through their lives. So here in verse one, we find that as workers together with God, Paul says, therefore, we plead with you again there's that term again we saw last chapter to urge or to beg and what was paul pleading with them because god was working through paul's life and and this is what god wanted to plead that they would not verse one notice receive the grace of god in vain now when we talk about the grace of god we're talking about the kind favor and help of god that's undeserved That is because God is kind and gracious and loving, whether we deserve it or not, God is gracious to us. So the grace of God is God's blessing. It's God's favor. It's God's help and kindness shown to undeserving people. And notice he did not want, he says, for them to receive the grace of God. He says in vain. The idea of in vain means in a useless way where it's wasted where there's no result or no success as the result of receiving that grace. Now, what does Paul mean here when he says, don't receive the grace of God in vain, in a useless way, in a wasted way? Well, I think there's a couple different potential answers to that and commentators dispute over it. It could be that Paul didn't want to see them receive the grace of God in vain as a Christian, whereby they would live carnally or sinfully as a Christian. That is, after they've been saved by the grace of God and understanding there is grace for sin and there is grace for failures, even as Christians, that they would make the mistake, as sometimes Christians do, where they then start to abuse the grace of God. 
And they start to live in compromise and make concessions and willfully sin in such a way where they just kind of abuse God's graciousness and kindness and, and kind of, as the Bible says, insult the spirit of grace. I think another way we could kind of receive the grace of God in vain is to be a Christian and on the opposite side of that to start living legalistically. That is where the Bible teaches we're saved by grace and we don't live under the law. We don't live by rules and requirements and rituals to try and be holy or be spiritual. And yet sometimes, sadly, we can regress into this condition where we start establishing little tiny rules and rituals and requirements. And sometimes churches do this and lay heavy trips on people. Well, if you're a Christian, you should dress this way and not that way. We're seeing these kind of songs and not those kind of songs. We're real Christians. Don't watch these kind of movies or any movies at all, or they don't go to dances, you know, they don't, you know, do certain things or real Christians do these things. You got to do these things if you want to be a real Christian. And there starts to create this legal relationship with God where somehow by doing those list of things or not doing certain things, that makes me more righteous than you. That makes me more spiritual or more holy. And, and that's really legalism. There's a whole book in the Bible, Galatians, that strongly refutes that very thing that we're not to, to, to abuse God's grace by living in a manner where we think somehow we add to our spirituality. I think it could also be referring to from the perspective of perhaps in the church in Corinth, like in all churches, there were those who sat there week after week and maybe they were at the church services and they heard the gospel of grace. And yet though they heard the gospel of grace, they, they received it in vain. That is, they listened to it, they heard it mentally and maybe even nodded their head week after week, but their heart was totally closed off to God's salvation. And they continued to just live in that mindset of, you know, I don't need this born again stuff. I don't need this get saved by Jesus stuff. I'm fine. I'll go to church. I'll sit there. But I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm just telling me I'm sinful and I'm rotten and I'm going to go to hell. And, and you could just receive the grace of God in a very vain way where because of arrogance you resist the gospel of grace but one other area that i think it's perhaps potentially the most likely that paul's inferring in context of the chapter is receiving the grace of god in vain by sort of failing to utilize the grace of god that's offered to you and i to serve the lord to do works for god right isn't this the context of the chapter really what paul's talking about christian service and his ministry work because we can only do such things and work for God according to the grace God gives us to do things. The Bible is very clear that to do good works, we have to be enabled by God to do such. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. Having then differing gifts according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Paul says there are grace gifts given by the spirit of God, but he says, but use your gifts. Don't waste your gifts. God's given you a measure of grace to have this particular gifting or this enablement. He says, but are you using it? Are you putting it into practice? Peter writing as well says something similar. First Peter four, he says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Notice each one, each Christian has received some gifting from the Lord by his grace. And he says, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So he says, God has dispersed measures of his grace to every single Christian, something that they've been enabled by the spirit of God to do. But he says, it's a stewardship issue. He says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, utilize your gift, put it into practice. Now, considering all that Paul's discussing about working together with God, I think this is the likely indication he's making mention of here don't receive the grace of God in vain. Because see, it is possible as a Christian to receive a measure of grace from the Lord spiritually because God wants to work through your life or use you in some way to help the body of Christ or to outreach or to minister or whatever it may be. And, and that grace becomes something that just becomes vain and wasted in our life because we don't put it into practice. We're not using that gift. And God's given us a measure of his grace because he wants to work through each of our lives. And yet we're kind of wasting the grace of God. 
And there's a measure of gifting and enablement where we could be serving the body of Christ or doing something and it's having no beneficial result. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. You should be blessed that God's given you a measure of his grace and use it. Find a way to employ that gift to bless and to serve others. So Paul then going on in verse two here, quotes from Isaiah 49 saying, for he says, God, and he quotes Isaiah 49, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Now in Isaiah 49, God was speaking to the nation of Israel, how when they were in a very bad time in their lives, they had cried out to the Lord for deliverance, for help, and God heard them, and God intervened quickly, and he responded to their cry without delay. God responded to them, and he acted instead of delaying when the opportunity for rescue came. And then Isaiah 49 goes on to describe how God now wanted his people to do the same back towards him. He now wanted to use them as a light under the world to reach the Gentiles, to bring salvation and to be his light. And God was saying to them, look, I answered you in an acceptable time. And without delay, I intervened and responded. And now I'm asking you to respond back to me. Now I want you to be my servant and to let me work through your life. And it was important that they would now respond to God and without delay that they would act. Now, Paul quotes that verse from a principal perspective because he wants to take it and make application to you and I in the church today. Look what he goes on to say, verse two. Behold, now is the accepted time, Paul says. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul uses that scriptural example or analogy from the Old Testament as a principle for the church today. He says in the same way right now, this is an acceptable time. This is an acceptable time because it's the day of salvation. So there's an urgency to respond to the day of salvation that God is making available through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now is the day for people to be able to come and freely be saved. And he's saying now's the acceptable time. It's the right time to respond to the invitation that God is offering to mankind. There's a doorway there's a window, there's an opportunity now on this earth, a day of salvation is being provided for all people to simply come and freely receive the gift of God's forgiveness and eternal life by accepting his son, Jesus Christ. But notice he calls it a day of salvation. What happens at the end of the day? It's over. And then a new day comes, right? There comes a point where the day expires, a day is a limited amount of time. There's an occasion, there's an opportunity, but once the day is gone, you can't get the day back, right? The day's over, a new day comes. Well, in the same way, spiritually, this is the day of salvation right now. This is an opportunity for people to come and to embrace Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of their sins, to get eternal life freely as a gift, but that day is not going to last forever. Eventually, that window of opportunity is going to end and the day will expire. And guess what's going to happen? A new day will come. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. And when the day of the Lord comes, then the judgment of God begins to fall upon humanity. So because of that, Paul says here, look, now is the time to respond without delay. That's why it's important to realize there is an urgency to get right with God. The Bible teaches that Hebrews chapter three says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The idea being that if your heart is sensitive enough that you're hearing God say something to you right now, the Bible says don't harden your heart because every time you do the voice of God may get a little bit harder for you to hear. So he says, if you hear his voice respond, the opportunity may not be there tomorrow. Now's the acceptable time. Today's the right hour. You know, we often say there's never a good day to start a diet, right? There's never a good day. To, there's, never, there, there's never a good day in some people's mind to get, say, oh, a convenient time. I want to live a little while. Look, you don't know if tomorrow's coming. There's no guarantee of that. 
We don't know if the remainder of the day is left for us. So the Bible's urgency is don't delay, get saved now. This may be the last chance you ever have. It's not a high pressure sales tactic. It's called a reality that our life is but a breath. And we don't know when our last breath is going to be. So the Bible teaches us, look, now's the acceptable day. If you're giving any thought to getting saved and surrendering your life to Jesus Christ and really living for him, God's saying, do it now. Don't delay. Don't wait. And that means for us as Christians who do know the Lord, seeking to work for him and be his servants, we should also not be delaying in ministering because this is the day of salvation. This is still the time when people can meet the Lord. And so therefore we should be working for the Lord. Now is the accepted time to engage in the Lord's work, to be sharing the gospel with people. We should speak to people with a sense of urgency. Oh, I don't like to pressure people. Well, what if today's their last day? We don't know that. We don't have to be obnoxious, but to be honest with people is, is loving. You know, I'll tell you, one of the greatest spiritual deceptions of the devil is this idea there's no hurry. There's no hurry. You know, perhaps you've heard the story before of, you know, a brand new few demons came into the devil's boardroom and they're trying to convince the devil they should get a promotion. So they're pitching their different ideas to help better deceive humanity. And one says, we just need to convince them that God is not real. There's no God. And if we could, and Satan says, look, that's been going on forever. People have been trying to do that. It's, I mean, the existence of God is so obvious to just a, a humble, logical thinking mind. Never going to work. Well, how about we convince them there's no devil. And so people really aren't evil. That's just the world's a mess. I mean, that's not going to work either. And so they each pitch their ideas, and then eventually one of the demons finally raised his hand. And he said, I have an idea. What if we just convince the world there's no hurry? And the devil said, you get a promotion. Get out there. That will be incredibly effective. Just convince every soul there's no rush. There's no hurry. There's plenty of time. And you know as well as I do that lie, there's no hurry, plenty of time to get right with God later, has kept many, many people from getting saved. There will be plenty of people, sadly, who ultimately find their eternal destiny in hell, and part of the reason will be they thought they would just get around to it tomorrow. And I'll tell you something else. That lie that there is no hurry, there's plenty of time, is also what has sidelined many of Christians from Christian service. Oh, eventually I'll do that. Eventually I'll, I'll serve the Lord. Eventually I'll engage in some form of, of ministry. And, and well, I, I got to take care of some things first. And, and that has kept many Christians sidelined because they just, there's no hurry. Do we really know that? I mean, the world we live in doesn't look like it's getting better. It looks like it's getting way worse, that it's winding down. And so the Bible says now, Now's the acceptable time. Now's the day of salvation, God would tell us. And because Paul sensed that important spiritual responsibility to work with God now, knowing time is short, that's why he describes some of what he was willing to endure. Look what he says, verse 3. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. So notice, Paul didn't want to wrongly offend people and stumble them in such a way that they would then blame him and they would then close him off because they thought that he was someone that wasn't worth respecting or listening to or receiving from. When he says there, we give no offense, it's the Greek word which means to stumble, to entangle in a trap. And so Paul says, you know, we don't want people to get stuck in their spiritual progress. We don't want people to get hindered or tripped up from being receptive to us. Paul didn't want to make people trip up because they were angered by something that he did or they were hurt by something that he said or the way he treated them or lose respect for him as a person because when that happens, people then, what do they do? They just shut off to you. Your opportunity gets closed and they turn you off if they become offended or stumbled in some way. And Paul says, we don't want our ministry, our help to people spiritually to be something that gets cut off because we offend or we stumble people unnecessarily and get shut off. And look, we need to be careful of that too when we want to minister to people that we would maintain an open door with people. 
Look, let me say this morning, one thing to let people be offended by is the gospel message. If they're going to get offended by something, it's okay if they get offended by the truth of the claims of the gospel. It's okay if people get offended in their pride by sharing the truth of the word of God. However, that being said, those are acceptable reasons to offend or stumble people because of our strong views politically or our strong ideas about COVID-19. Or, I mean, you understand all these other things that we have such strong convictions and we like to talk about and to offend and stumble people and have them shut off because we stumble them because of things that we say that really weren't necessary to stumble or offend them. And then we lose opportunity to minister to people. We should stay conscious of these kind of things. We want to have an open doorway and not stumble people relationally by something that we say or something maybe that we did. We should be conscious of these things. Do we understand our freedoms and are we right to have, you know, entitled to different views and perspectives? Absolutely. But we don't always have to share our view on everything. We don't always have to give our input or opinion. In fact, sometimes to me, there's a, there's a degree of wisdom in not sharing your views on certain things. You know, I've watched, perhaps you've watched, I've watched people spend time utilizing the precious moments they have to teach God's word and the privilege to stand in a pulpit, giving people statistics about this, that, or whatever, about what's going on with COVID-19. And I'm thinking to myself, you just lost half of the room. Because some people are like, yeah, right on, man, tell me that's right. You, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, right on, right on, that's right, yeah. And then the other people, they're sitting there feeling mortified because they have a different view on the whole thing. And so now all of a sudden they're hurt, they're angered, they're offended, and they're, I'm, I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm not listening to you anymore. And my thought is, why did you just spend time teaching the word of God? Why just let the Holy Spirit let people figure that kind of stuff out? That's their personal decision. It's their business. We're not the media. We're the ministry. We're the ministry. We're helping people's souls. And so Paul says, we don't want to offend people. So they blame us and then close us off. And I think it's wise for all of us when we want to serve the Lord to think in, in prudent ways in regards to that. Like Jesus, you know, he loved and he served people, but he was willing to do what was best for their welfare. So Paul here going on verse four, he says, but in all things, we commend ourselves, notice, as ministers of God. And that word ministers there is where you get our word from the original Greek. They're just the word servant. And I think that's great because that's exactly what real ministry is and supposed to be. It's about being a servant. It's just about being a servant. We have a glamorized view of what ministry is in today's modern pop culture. It's not being a professional presenter, giving talks. It's not being the, you know, the face of an organization. It's about being a humble servant. Look at Jesus' style of ministry. It, just, it was servant leadership. Jesus said, the greatest among you should be the servant of all, whatever's required to be done. That, that's true ministry, just serving, looking for ways to serve. And what does fruitful servanthood involve? What could Paul say of his ministry? Well, that's what he starts to describe. And look at what he gives us, kind of his resume. He says, in all things, we commend ourselves as servants and ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs. He wouldn't get recruits from any seminaries in distresses, and that's just the first few things. So sometimes we see it's necessary to endure through personal struggles of hardship when we seek to make our life useful for God to do his work and to serve other people. Sometimes we may have to struggle through some hardships. It's a part of the process. Paul mentions here in patience, which is a term in the Greek that speaks of bearing up under severe crushing weight. The term there speaks of being under a very heavy burden, a circumstance that's hard, but yet pressing onward in perseverance. The idea is you're carrying a real heavy pack. The weight is heavy, the pressure is on, and you're under a heavy load, whatever that heavy load may be, circumstantially. But you're under a very heavy load, yet in those hard times, you keep putting one foot in front of the other and in perseverance, through patience and perseverance, with the heavy load, you push through the pain. You push through the difficulty because you see the higher cause of Christ. And like Jesus, you do what you have to in patient perseverance 
to finish the will of God. Paul then mentions as well here the word tribulations. And that word speaks of a crushing pressure where you feel like you're suffocating, where you feel like it's hard to just keep your breath, right? You're under a lot of pressure. Maybe you're in a difficult season and there are painful experiences. And to some degree, as you're trying to just faithfully walk with Jesus and do what you can to minister to your children and serve the Lord in some ways, you're literally struggling just to keep your breath. Pressing on, dealing with tribulations. Again, he says, in needs, that is lack of basic necessities. Maybe sometimes not having enough, living without. The idea is you're willing perhaps even at times to go without in order to do the thing that you think is right before the Lord. And maybe you therefore go without and you make it by with less because you want your life to count more for the kingdom. Sometimes that's a decision that you have to make. Hey, I'll go with less. Paul's going to talk about that more at the end of these verses. He says in distresses, and that term speaks of being squeezed in a narrow and a tight space where it feels like you're stuck. And Paul says, sometimes it seems like we're in a circumstance and there's no way out. There's no escape and it doesn't look good. It looks like things are closing in and there is no way we're getting out of this. And they're under a lot of stress. And Paul said, you know what? At times, these were the personal struggles we endured through. But they didn't sideline us. We just kept persevering forward. We just kept moving in a forward direction. Paul goes on to say there in verse 5, also in stripes and in imprisonments and in tumults. And those three terms speak of navigating through forms of suffering mistreatment from other people. I mean, think of what he describes there, stripes. That speaks of beatings, being tortured, inflicted. Why? They would beat Paul and inflict others at times as Christians to try and stop them. So what that in essence reminds us of is sometimes taking a beating for doing the right thing and being willing to say, you know, I'm going to take a beating for this, but I'm going to do the right thing. And Paul says at times that was a part of the process. He mentions imprisonments and oftentimes Paul found himself imprisoned literally imprisoned for serving the Lord. He mentions there are word tumults. Your translation may render it, and if so, it's correct, mobs or riots. And that wasn't promoting a mob or a riot because as a Christian, he had a certain political agenda. He wasn't rioting against the government or politics. Paul, because he cared so much about helping people spiritually and morally, people would get so angry at him, they'd start a riot. They'd start a riot and have a mob come attack him because he was trying to help people for the kingdom of God. And he would endure that. And even as Jesus was mistreated, Paul at times endured mistreatment from other people. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we willing for love's sake and for God's sake at times to endure mistreatment, to love other people, to serve other people, to care for other people? Sometimes that happens, right? We talk about sometimes people bite the hand that feeds them. And sometimes we have to be willing to endure mistreatment rather than trying to always preserve ourselves to serve others and to do what's right. Paul goes on, verse 5, to then mention also in labors and in sleeplessness and in fastings. And those three words speak of willingness to sacrifice personally for the higher cause of the kingdom of God and its purposes. That word labor speaks of working to the point of exhaustion laboring to complete weariness, sleeplessness, speaks of going without rest, sacrificing sleep when necessary and if needed. And again, why? Context, to do God's work. The idea is, Paul says, there are times that I was willing to give up sleep because I wanted to be able to serve the Lord. There were times I was willing to go without sleep or less sleep because I wanted to be able to, to be able to invest in the things of the kingdom of God. Paul says, this was something that I was willing to do. He mentions fastings. Most translations render that hunger. And the term does speak more of going without a meal. So whether it was fasting and prayer or just going even without necessary food, Paul again here is speaking about how he was willing to sacrifice in great ways to serve the Lord. He was willing to make personal sacrifices. Look, this morning, are you willing to sacrifice at times to participate in the work of God? Are you willing to work hard? Are you willing to go without some rest? Are you willing to go without certain things and make personal sacrifices 
because you say, you know what, like a soldier on the battlefield, I'll make some sacrifices because this war is worth fighting. This is valuable. There's something beneficial to serving the kingdom of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us a bunch of short terms here to encourage us how. Verse 6, he says, we do it, first of all, by purity. I think that speaks of by giving God a pure vessel. Giving God a life that's pure, that he can work through. That is, we don't offer God a defiled or a dirty vessel. He says, we do it by knowledge. That is by knowing God personally, and that's the term. It speaks of intimate knowing. Paul says one of the best ways to serve God is to get to know God, to know God really well yourself, and to to get to know the knowledge of the word of God, a good working knowledge of the scripture makes us very useful. Paul says here, by long-suffering, that is able to suffer long when it's not easy. Keep pressing forward without getting impatient or even giving up, having some staying power. Remaining steadfast. You know, that's the idea. Suffering long, long suffering. The idea is I'm suffering, but I'll keep suffering for a long time. The implication is a long obedience in the same direction. A lot of people aren't willing to do that. They'll do, they'll do a little bit, but nah, I've been doing that for three days. I've been doing it for a week, man. Or, or I know this is the will of God, but I'm hitting some roadblocks or obstacles. Stay in power. Long obedience, same direction. Put your hand to the plow. Keep pushing forward. Consistency, get momentum. Paul says doing it by kindness. That is willing to be kind to people. And they may not always be kind to you. But you just keep being kind even when others aren't kind to you. Where do I find the strength to do that? Paul says, I thought of that for you. By the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to be effective in serving the Lord, we have to learn how to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not by might or by power. It's not in the work of the flesh. It's not human ingenuity and great ideas. And I got some great skills and talents. No, you have to, if you genuinely want to be effective for God, folks, you have to learn how to be led of the spirit and truly be open to the power of the spirit of God. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural. You have to believe such things to be true and realize that, Lord, By the power of your Holy Spirit, I am just an available vessel, but you have to be willing and open and learn how to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit working through our lives to let us be useful. And what's important as well, Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, also by sincere love. By sincere love, that is truly caring about people's welfare, because I can tell you from personal experience, serving people because it's just the right thing to do, it wears out real quick. But there's something different than happens when God, by his spirit, puts a sincere love in your heart for people. And you really care about their welfare. And you really help them because you want to see them be helped and do better. And so when we struggle at times with serving, God, give me a sincere love. I just, I need it, Lord. Pour your love into my heart. I don't have the right love that I need to keep doing this in my job or in my family or in the ministry that I'm trying to. Lord, give me love, please because that's a powerful motivator to keep us going. Paul then says in verse seven, also it happens by the word of truth. That is, Paul spoke the truth to people because people need to hear the truth to be helped, particularly the truth of God's word. Jesus said the truth is what sets people free. God's truth in his word is what enlightens people. That's what, in, that is what enables people to do the right thing. It's what guides people and strengthens people to do what's right. And so we should mainly focus really on a predominant thing in ministry. That is speak the truth of God's word to people and then let God work in people's lives. But just give them the truth. Lovingly, honestly, share the truth of God with them. And then he says, going on also, by the power of God. That's that word dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite or dynamic. Paul says, I had to learn how to operate in the dynamic power supernaturally of God. Paul had learned the lesson that it is true that though we are weak human beings, that we serve a mighty God and that God's power is displayed in human weakness, right? That his power can be manifest sometimes the weaker that we are because it's by God's supernatural power that true effective ministry happens. Romans 15, Paul says, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. 
in word and deed and mighty signs and wonders by the power of the spirit of God. Look, oh, I'm too weak. I just, I don't have perfect. The Bible says God gives power to the weak, not to the strong. We want to use weakness as a trade-off as an excuse. God says, I, I like them weak, like them weak, because then they can't boast. <laughs> Keeps them humble. So God says, utilize my power. Let my power be what you depend upon. God, I have nothing to offer, but here's this weak body, God, but by your power, by the power of God. You know, my family, they're loving. They said yesterday when I was walking around the house like I was 90 years old, said to me, Dad, what are you going to do? How, you can't even get up to the pulpit. I said, well, that's okay. I'll get there eventually. And then by the power of God, the rest will happen somehow. Right? It's just by the power of God. We rely on God's power in the midst of our weakness. Is it a battle? Of course. That's why Paul says, look what he says at the end of verse 7. The armor of righteousness on the right hand and the left. That speaks of needing God's protective help because it is indeed a spiritual battle, right? And when he speaks on the right hand and on the left, the language seems to infer both advancing forward and also defending against attack. That seems to be the language that Paul's using there. So what he's saying is, yes, this is spiritual warfare, and sometimes we have to stand and resist evil attacks, and we have to stand in defense against evil, and other times we should be advancing the truth and righteousness in a dark and evil world, taking territory for the kingdom of God. And there should be a balance of both, defeating the powers of darkness, trying to ruin people's lives. Paul says, verse 8, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. You look at Paul the Apostle's ministry, it's not true. Sometimes Paul was honored for the work that he did, and he'd get a good report, and people would speak well of him, and he would be someone who was seen as a true servant of God. And other times, just like Jesus, right, Paul would be dishonored by people who found issue with him or didn't like what he said or what he did. And so therefore they would say, you can't trust that guy. He's not true. He's a deceiver. And what Paul's saying here in verse eight, in essence is we serve God and we serve people, whether they honor and appreciate us or not. Whether they honor and appreciate us for what we do or whether they despise us and disregard us, we're just going to keep serving people. We're just going to keep doing what's right, even as Jesus did. Paul then in verse 9 says, as unknown yet well-known. In other words, we may be unknown among people, but yet the Bible says you may be very well-known to God. You know, we may not always get recognition for what we do for God and things that people don't see, yet God knows who we are and God always knows what we're doing for him. So we may be unknown by everybody else, but we may be very well known in heaven. God may know what we're doing. God's fully aware of everything that we do, the smallest act, a cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus. And look, you may serve the Lord on this earth as a faithful mom, as a faithful wife, a faithful husband. You know, all the different ways that we serve the Lord in so many different ways. And we think nobody's aware, nobody sees. All of heaven sees. And we may be overlooked on earth and never get any acknowledgement for the things that we've done for the kingdom of God. But God's seen everything we've ever done. And it's all known to him. And it's that very thing that helps us at times to keep at it, to know the reward will come in God's good time. Paul says, as dying yet we live. In other words, dying to ourselves, that we might let the life of Christ work through us. He says, as chastened, again, back to this idea of being beaten, whipped, abused, yet not killed. You know, I think Paul invented the term, what doesn't kill you just makes you stronger. <laughs> Yeah, it happens, but you know, it doesn't, it's not killing us. We're, we still got a little left in us, he says. Verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, often doing God's work or doing the right thing. Have you ever noticed serving people? Sometimes it results in heartbreak. Any parent knows that when you start to raise your kids and they get older, right? And, and whether you're serving people, serving your kids, part of serving people and serving the Lord, sometimes there's disappointment, there's heartbreak, there's sorrow. 
yet at the same time, you can always rejoice in the Lord. You can always find joy in him and satisfaction in him. And sometimes I tell you, being hurt by people is what deepens our own relationship with the Lord. Paul says, concluding here as poor, yet making many rich. So Paul speaks of living with less financially, giving up prosperity. Maybe he could have experienced so that he could do what? Dedicate his life to work in ways to enrich the lives of other people spiritually. And Paul says, this is what we did to help invest in people's lives spiritually, to make other people rich in the things of the Lord. He said, we were willing to be poor so that we could make others rich. You know, what a wonderful heart to forsake material gain to better accomplish the work of God, to do more things for the kingdom of God. You know, history is filled with people. I just think of, you know, you know, missionaries and ministers and pastors and servants of the Lord, people who perhaps they could have enriched themselves financially to much greater degrees. And yet they chose to forsake that. They chose to give up the opportunity to advance corporately or to, to work a lucrative job or to use their skills in ways where they could have been more rich or more wealthy or succeeded in the system of the world out there. And instead, they devoted themselves to the work of the kingdom of God or to some degree, they didn't go so far in all the extra and excess they could have made because they wanted to use at least some of their time, not making an extra five, ten hundred bucks but doing things for the kingdom of God. And in that moderation, in a sense, they chose to embrace less or to have less so that he could enrich people's lives spiritually. What a wonderful thing. Paul says, finally, in conclusion here, having nothing yet possessing all things. What a statement. Paul had little materially. He owned little, but he felt like he had a very full life. You know, Jesus said, I don't even have anywhere to lay my head. And how wonderful to see, again, this is biblical Christianity. This is biblical ministry here. Jesus said man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. So counterculture to the American life. Man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things he possesses. But Jesus says, but is your life rich in God? Is your spiritual life rich? Is there a wealth of other things that aren't material and tangible and can't be measured in bank accounts and 401ks and what kind of car we drive or house we have, but instead to say, you know what? It may look like I have nothing, but I've got everything. I got everything that matters. I know God. I know where I'm going. I got a healthy family, right? I mean, just all these things that we often overlook that are the true riches. Look, never overlook the wealth of those things and may God give us grace to be content and to be constructive for him. Let's stand together.